You like Huey Lewis on the news? They're okay. In 87, Huey released this. Four, their most accomplished album. I think their undisputed masterpieces, Hip to Be Square. A song so catchy, most people probably don't listen to the lyrics. But they should, because it's not just about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of friends. It's also a personal statement about the band itself. Hey, Paul! Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Today, as part of a listener request, we'll be discussing American Psycho, starring Christian Bale. Do you know what Ed Gein said about women? Ed Gein? Maker D. Canal Bar? No. Serial killer, Wisconsin, 50s. And what did Ed say? He said, when I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. One part of me wants to take her out and talk to her, be real nice and sweet and treat her right. And what the other part of him think? <laughs> what her head would look like on a stick. <laughs> Jared Leto. Oh, uh, wasn't Rothschild originally handling the Fisher account? How'd you get it? Well, I couldn't tell you that, Halberstram. But they don't have to kill you. <laughs> Reese Witherspoon. Your father practically owns the company. You can do anything you like, silly. I don't want to talk about it. I hate that job anyway. See why you just don't quit. Because I want to fit in. Chloe Savigny. Make someone happy. Have you ever wanted to? I guess you could say I just want to have a meaningful relationship with someone special. And Willem Dafoe. Anyway, I'm pretty sure he'll turn up somewhere later. I mean... To think that one of his friends killed him for no reason whatsoever would be too ridiculous. <laughs> Isn't that right, Patrick? Directed by Mary Harron. So, don't you want to know what I do? No. No, not really. Well, I work on Wall Street. Pierce and Pierce. Have you heard of it? Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Do you like Huey Lewis in the news? It's Gally in Glasgow. In the morning, if my face is a little puffy, I'll put on an ice pack while doing my stomach crunches. I can do a thousand now. It's Matt in South Korea. I don't want you to get drunk. Well, that's a very fine Chardonnay you're not drinking. It's Joe in Yorkshire. Oh, welcome back, gang, and welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Rewind Movie Podcast. Today, listeners, we have a returning special guest, someone, in my opinion, who works best within the confines of a group than a solo artist. And I stress the word artist. It's Joe McDonald. I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me back. It's good to be here with you guys. I'm not searching for compliments, but I hope you got the reference there. Um, I'm, I always try and include them uh, in my introductions. So today's film is a listener request, and it comes from James Monroe from Fingering Ho in East Colchester, which is in Essex. Uh, and he has selected, I don't know why he's fingering, uh, he has selected American Psycho for us to discuss. He left no rationale. 
but he wanted us to dive into it, and he did highlight his love for Christian Bale's performance. So, gentlemen, that is our mission. James, thank you very much, uh, all the way from Finger and Hope. Um, we do appreciate every listener that, that, that asked us to do it uh, from all parts of the country. So there we go. Joe, welcome back. Um, big fan of American Psycho. Listeners, you'll, you'll recognize that uh, Devlin... And Patrick are not with us again. Lost boys, aren't we all? Um, but we will, we will do our best, won't we, yeah. team, to uh, to tackle this. Well, it's an interesting it movie um, with lots to discuss. So we'll uh, we'll get straight into it. Joe, as our guest, I will ask you first: history with American Psycho, first experiences, etc. Very similar to uh, Lebowski and Leon. Actually, it's strange that uh, this came up for me to do because it really was. It was one of those. Friday night video rentals when I was about 16 or 17, I think. Was this a cooler older brother? Um, I don't think so. I think, I mean, I think it was just, it was, it was all over, all over the, all over the news. And well, you know, you go into a rental shop and it's, you know, it's what you rent. You rent, you rent psychopath movies, don't you, on a Friday night? Um, so it, it, it fell into us, into us like that way. But, um, I, I, I read the book and I couldn't remember. I must have read the book after the film. I can't remember. Um, but I definitely read it around that time because it was when I lived, I remember reading it when I lived at my mum and dad's. So that was, that was my first meeting with the film. You want to go next, Gal? You always go last. You go next. Ah, uh, well, yeah, also a video rental, but, um, I remember this one vividly because I am a little bit younger than you, Joe, I think. Um, and, it would have been rental when I was maybe 15. Could have been just turned mm. 16. I was into horror movies at this point, like all teenagers. Um, now, I hadn't seen Scream at the cinema because, again, I was too young. But I was in that headspace of, like, the Miramax horror movie. Um, obviously, this is Lionsgate. But you see the word psycho, and I'm, you know, I'm just coming off Need Campbell. Jennifer Love, huge boobs. I'm thinking, yes, American Psycho is going to be another kind of slasher horror movie, postmodern. Lots of, um, yeah, lots of cool stuff for me to nick and then quote back at school as if I, you know, I'm smart enough to come up with that kind of stuff. Not the case. And, and I couldn't rent it. So I went with my mum and she rented it and watched it with me. <sighs> and it stopped at the, at the threesome. Uh, she was not. She was not best pleased. She switched it off. She intervened. She intervened, yeah. I think it was probably when he said, eat it. Um, she was like, this is enough. Yeah. <laughs> Don't just stare at it. Um, so, yeah, it was one of those, one of those, one of those where, um, uh, yeah, that was my first experience. But I will say, I also remember feeling quite disappointed because, as I say, I thought it was going to be a kind of nuts and bolts slasher, slasher movie. Um and it went way over my head. The book was Forbidden Fruit. I read the book. Then I watched the movie again. Um, I don't remember anything about the book, though. So please do not ask me about, you know, specific plot details, characters, etc. All I remember is pages and pages of just dreams of consciousness about clothing, um, which I was like, Jesus, it's like 100 pages in. No one's killed anybody. Um, I watched the film and I just got it. I just kind of got it. So... It's something that I've watched many, many times since, um, and I've always been a bit of a champion for it. So sandwiches, I will probably be on the positive side of the ledger. However, rewatching it this week with Danielle, 
some interesting discussion points with my um, with my fiance, and I will bring those to the table. So I'm looking forward to having the discussion because it really is one of those movies that you can't escape when once you've watched it, you're definitely not going to go, well, that was all right, and then walk away. You're definitely going to have an opinion one way or other. So um, yeah, looking forward to it. What about you, Matt? Well, uh, just to contextualize it a bit, this was when I thankfully passed my GCSEs, most of them anyway, and uh, mm. found myself at a technical college and I was studying um, film, TV, radio and newspaper journalism. And we go to the uh, oh. ABC cinema in Darlow and we go to the showcase cinema in Teesside, which I know Joe is, uh, are you a patron of the uh, <laughs> Teesside showcase? Uh, yeah, I've been there a few times. <clears throat> yeah, I've been there recently yeah. actually. It's uh like all cinemas, it's like it's just got five massive seats in it now. Each <laughs> <laughs> screen has just got <laughs> five like living rooms. Yeah, but they were my two local cinemas, and we'd see everything from like Gladiator to the Beach to the Patriot. I remember that time it was like Snatch, Road Trip, Almost Famous, Castaway, and Fast and the Furious. I think they're they're the ones that I wrote down that we saw at that time. So there was some of the best movie going years of my life, I, and we had like real nice. Uh, communal experiences um with like people from college and stuff so um this this was like when my my friends were kind of hyper masculine sports fans and my taste in films was still kind of forming and i hadn't i didn't really have an opinion on on films i was just you know consuming whatever was on and um i saw american psycho on on dvd around around this time we didn't see it in the cinema and uh it i I remember it it kind of fitting into that crowd because we were all big fight club fans there's a violent promise to it and 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 that kind of overshadowed that first viewing because i I think like you said gally we were expecting something different I, i don't i don't think um we expected what we got and uh i i had no sense that it was going to be a critique of like male behavior or like even a black comedy. And I was really terrible at reading these things then like satire, even it's, I think I was 17. I couldn't even detect, even though I like the young ones and have I got news for you and stuff like that. I still, when I see a film with satire, I, I don't think I quite, it didn't quite click with me. I didn't quite understand what they were doing. Uh, so at, around that time I was at, at technical college and we had a teacher called Andy Willoughby who was obsessed with Dennis Hopper and Cronenberg and Lynch and beat Takeshi and Kurosawa and Chaplin and all these things that I'd never experienced. So I was sort of, it, th- this was a film that was on the cusp of that kind of awakening. But I, I do remember being a bit miffed because I thought, I felt like the film felt it was smarter than me. And it was, it was, but you know, nobody likes to sort of feel that. I'll tell you what did catch me by surprise, the running time. Beautiful. Isn't it? Mm. 90 minutes. 90 minutes. Yeah. I was like, yeah. fantastic. Well, every time I see one, it just proves that it, 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 it proves that it can be done. Um, you, not everything yeah. needs to be two hours plus. And, and when I watch things now, if I watch something on Netflix, the first thing I look at is how long it is. Cause who's got the time to, to watch a two and a half hour film, you know, but you know. Well, especially us, Matt, we're, you know, the, our, our body clocks run down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, close to the unless grave, it's Magnolia or Terminator 2, I'll, I'll let it off, but you know. Mm, yeah, special edition indeed. Okay, well, before we get into our discussion, I will ask you, Matt, if uh, you can remind us and the listeners of the plot to American Psycho. 
consumer-mad capitalist society-defining, yuppie-infested Wall Street, New York City, 1987. Handsome 27-year-old wealthy trust fund drama queen Patrick Bateman, played by Christian Bale, and his circle of narcissistic doppelganger bros bounce from the same restaurant to restaurant, handing out the same business card after business card, sharing slightly better haircuts than one another, and occasionally their lovers too. All the while banging on about the splendor of Dorsia reservations and outrageous charcoal arugula. And amidst all this, a detective, played by Willem Dafoe, a fiancé, played by Reese Witherspoon, a mistress, played by Samantha Mathis, a co-worker, played by Jared Leto, and a secretary, played by Chloe Sevigny. Between Walkman listening sessions to Huey Lewis and the News and Phil Collins, the utterly insane Bateman breaks away from his luxurious high-rise reality, indulging in inspirational screenings of everything from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre to two full hours of triple-X backdoor fun, committing atrocities by biting women beneath the sheets, stabbing a tramp and stomping his dog to death, murdering high-class escorts, attacking colleagues with hatchets, nakedly pursuing call girls with chainsaws, blowing away old deers, attempting to feed stray cats into ATM machines, and shooting up cop cars in the nighttime streets. Or does he? A journey of hallucinogenic madness ensues, in which we learn Bateman is more an idea, some kind of abstraction, only an entity, something illusory, and is simply not there. Is it all a deathly delusion? Or is he a real lethal killer on the verge of frenzy with a mask of sanity about to slip? A corporate robot finally driven to mass murder as a means to unleash a previously repressed primal fire and murderous internal rage. I think a good jumping off point for American Psycho is to go back to source um, or back to formula, as Willem Dafoe would might say. So let's talk about the book, Brett Easton Ellis, and kind of how this movie gets made. Normally, listeners, we don't do this, but I think contextually for American Psycho, it's important. Did you feel like there was a Brett Easton Ellis thing at that moment? You feel like he was nailing... The, the sort of zeitgeist, in a way. I think when it was optioned, because it was optioned in 90, I think, 91, wasn't it? Um, but it wasn't made until 2000. So, but he was on the back of some... Um, he was like a... a what's, what's the word? The Brat Pack. The literary mm. Brat Pack, I think, wasn't he? Yeah. In the 80s. Um, and he'd had a lot of success um, with... I think Rules of Attraction was written before American mm-hmm. Psycho, actually. Mm. There's a Bateman Brothers crossover there. So, yeah. 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 I wouldn't, yeah, I, I, you uh, know, not not to be harsh on Vanderbeek, but <laughs> he never really pulls off the Bateman stuff. No. I'm afraid Dawson goes wild. Anyway, sorry, that's another movie. Yeah, but um, it's written. Yeah, it's it's obviously it's stream of consciousness, which is a very you know is a literary um, technique, mm. isn't it? It's I've never really gotten away with, to be honest. Um, but it's I found it a very difficult read. Um, from my memories of it, it's been over t- probably 20 years since I read it. Um, and I found not necessarily the violence to be difficult, just the literary style to be difficult. I was, I was diff- didn't, it wasn't an easy read. I would not rush back to read right. it again. 
Um, but it certainly informs my opinion of the film, I have to say, the book. So what, what were the early incarnations of the film? Do you know, was it the Cronenberg thing first or De Palma, I heard? From what I read, Matt, Mary Harron was originally signed on to direct the movie because she just had critical success with I Shot and mm-hmm. Warhol. Lionsgate signed her up. I think, I think it was one of those things where the book gets that real buzz where actually, you know what, we need some bigger names attached. You can direct it, but you, we're going to impose who yeah. we want. And she was like, Nah. Cronenberg comes on board with Johnny Depp, which this is early 90s mm-hmm. as well. So this is mm-hmm. what Edward Scissorhands gets an actual scissor for a hand and kills. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, well, I can, I can maybe see it. It's a very different film, but I can see it. Cronenberg would be interesting, but I don't know what Cronenberg would have. He's not really renowned for Tong firmly in cheek, is he? I think the crux of it is, is that Ellis didn't think it needed to be made. I don't think he really thought there was any 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 use in making it into a film well there's the thing there that he sort of laid out like the the ambiguous nature of the book is there but as soon as you make a film of it some of that ambiguity is going to disappear and some argue that it's one of the failings of the adaptation that uh the ambiguity kind of disappears and it does turn into more of a hallucinatory dream at the end and the book tackles that in a more even way where you can kind of make your own mind up about what really occurred uh, and then oliver stone was next was he that, that, that's harring comes back as in the director's seat and she's pushing hard for christian bale at this point and i think one of the things that um you know hard for us to now think and even now i you know it's strange with christian bale I and mean, we'll talk about him a bit later but i never i never look at him as like an a-list star i look at him as like an a-list mm. actor um, he's not like a star. I don't think he's not somebody who I'm going to go and see the Christian Bale film. He's the child actor from Empire and the Sun. She was pushing very hard for him because I think she saw him do a do a screen test and she was like, "Yeah, you're you're the person who's going to tackle this character." And the one thing that she was pushing as well is that she inherently found the book to be hilarious, and everyone else who came to the project, Cronenberg. The studio were like, well, no, this is a serious, darkly twisted tale of uh, a man's psyche. He's like, no, this is, he's a buffoon. Yeah. He's an idiot. And that's that. And she clicked with, with Bell over that, apparently. That's why they were sort of locked together because he got it. He got the, the dark humor of it. But then Lionsgate said, Hey, there's this kid called DiCaprio. Um, would you, you know, would you go with that? And, uh, and I think. She's wonderful. I've got nothing but respect for her after this week from just reading some of her interviews. And one of the charming things she said was, I didn't want to meet DiCaprio, not because I didn't want to tell him no, but she figured he would be able to convince her to say yes. So she was like, I don't want to meet with him because he'll literally do the Gervais thing and charm her. <laughs> well, it's immediate bums on seats, isn't it, if, if DiCaprio's in it? Absolutely. And also she was not happy with the fact that that would change fundamentally the tone of the movie. You know, this is DiCaprio post titanic yeah i do think physically he still looks too young though i don't think he could pull this off he's too young yet the baby the baby face would have been a problem he look he would be a good paul allen yeah he wouldn't be a good uh i think uh, i think there was worries about about his um, appeal as well and who would go and watch it they bring in oliver stone you can see why he was offered or, or why he was in the picture but the guy who made wall street you can see what they're doing but then leo and oliver stone can't agree on a style and a vision for the movie. Mary Harron was still 
attached as a screenwriter and then they give her the they give her the film but say you can have christian bale but you can only have seven million quid which is essentially the movie that we then get i have all the characteristics of a human being flesh blood skin hair but not a single clear identifiable emotion except for greed and disgust Something horrible is happening inside of me, and I don't know why. My nightly bloodlust has overflowed into my days. I feel lethal, on the verge of frenzy. I think my mask of sanity is about to slip. I imagine that the use of voiceover was a way to use a lot of the, you know, the, the novel exactly as it is, and and just port it over. And mm-hmm. and as a cinematic technique, you tend to frown on it. But here, the the way we hear exactly his words, and he's quite condescending. I, I don't mind hearing Patrick Bateman tell us these very specific things because it's kind of interesting to to be condescended by the the lead. Uh, and I think the other factor that maybe put him off is, is how satire is dealt with uh, on on film because I think it is confusing to a lot of people as well. It, it certainly baffled me at the beginning. I didn't, like you, Gally, I didn't really know exactly how I was supposed to be feeling a lot of the time when I was 17 watching it for the first time. No, but now, Matt, Mary Harron gives it you up front, doesn't she? Oh, the, the opening titles. Yeah, the opening titles is telling you immediately this movie is going to offset your expectations. Yeah, we had uh, Catherine Bigelow on, uh, she was the last female director we we talked about on the podcast and she did Point Break and she set up the Johnny Utah, Keanu Reeves stuff on the shooting range immediately. And she, she was someone who set the tone instantly and kept it going through the whole film and it happens again here with another female director it's it's the uh it's called american psycho so you're expecting one thing then you get the what looks like a blood splatter which is in fact raspberry coolie or whatever it is on a plate and uh we're on to something else so she's subverted expectations right from the beginning and and if you're aware of that satirical tone like right from the beginning you're more likely to go with what she does later i think but i know now that i'm in a comfortable space where i can kind of watch this as an outsider uh as, as if it was you know monkeys in a zoo where i'm yeah. just like what are these people doing this is ridiculous yeah. and again that that distance 2000 to the 80s what i found this time round, interestingly is that this movie is quite um forward looking i think it manages to nail like lots of stuff that we do now i, I like all the, the virtue signaling stuff mm-hmm. where, where patrick's going on about um how oh how, he's read he's read yeah, a his w- world hunger <laughs> rant and uh, you can see yeah. that through is just justin through is just he, he knows it's bullshit and but he's watching reese reese witherspoon to see her reaction it's similar as well i think i think it's similar to his uh to, the, to those um you know like the the reviews of the music that he reads it's all like from a page isn't it? it's all from an editor well, when he goes on his rant about why Phil Collins is is this or that, he's he's just word for word ripping it off. It's just mm. lifted it. He's lifted it, and the same for his um, you know, his virtue signaling bits. They just feel, and it's really funny because it's really like obvious. It's like the way it's delivered and the the way it's it's kind of crowbarred, not crowbarred, but written in. It feels like yeah, he's just written, he's just yeah. that in the New York Times, and and that shows his lack of personality too. He's just ripping off something he's read. He's, he hasn't developed his own thoughts on it it's like he's not really there he's not really human he's just like a robot reciting what he's read take the lyrics to land of confusion 
In this song, Phil Collins addresses the problems of abusive political authority. In Too Deep is the most moving pop song of the 1980s about monogamy and commitment. The song is extremely uplifting. Their lyrics are as positive and affirmative as uh, anything I've heard in rock. Christy, get down on your knees so Sabrina can see your asshole. Phil Collins' solo career seems to be more commercial and therefore more satisfying in a narrower way. Especially songs like In the Air Tonight and uh, Against All Odds. Sabrina, don't just stare at it, eat it. Well, obviously what's so funny about it is that, you know, not knocking Phil Collins, but that it's the it's the popular choices of the day. And I was thinking to myself when I was watching it with Danielle this week, I was like, who would Patrick Bateman be pontificating about now is like would it be the latest pitbull album but the the way it translates into a soundtrack is is really cool as well i mean when i first saw it i i never understood why you'd put songs like that in a film and i was very naive as to why they would do that it's like that's not cool you know i'm not going to get that soundtrack but now you understand that those songs have all been selected for very specific character based reasons not to make a pulp fiction soundtrack or a, or a reservoir dog soundtrack it's to you know, um, it, it's to set the scene of the 80s. Mm. Yeah, because he never really talks about New Order. <laughs> if he was cool, he would have actually gone a diatribe about how New Order are great. That stands out because I put it in my notes. That's the only good song on the soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and that, that one passes him by completely. Yeah, it does. Uh, although Justin Saru is enjoying it massively with his dancing. Again, all that, all that stuff at the beginning, though, like that's the stuff where Mary Harron is kind of like easing us into this world and saying, listen, you can, you, you can laugh at it. And that's what makes those jarring moments of violence so much more impactful, but I can totally get it. Cause I definitely had the reaction when I first saw it as a kid, partly cause my mum was in the room, but even the first time I saw it uh, afterwards, where I was like, this is going over my head. That there's a sophistication that is required in, in order to, to go with it this it's a film made by intellectuals and and you know a 17 year old kid is not going to get get those levels but so it was a, a really interesting listener pick it was a really interesting rewind for that for those things and every time i watched it i was getting other kind of layers of it let's talk about christian bale then because mary harren fought bloody hard to get him this is for me his best performance he's ever done but i'd, I'd probably agree with you gally i think i think particularly the end there when he when he has his enormous breakdown i'm not usually a fan of those enormous kind of operatic moments in terms of acting because that's not always the best judge of what a performance is but uh, i was listening to the commentary today and she said he did it what 14 15 16 times and yeah. everyone was better than the last one and he just kept doing it until he just disintegrated and and he couldn't do it anymore and uh they they picked one of the later takes which is very anti-kubrick he tends to do like 30 takes and he you know, print, prints, he prints all of them, but he uses like take one to five usually. But yeah, she went with one of the last ones. Paul Allen. I killed Paul Allen with an axe in the face. His body is dissolving in a bathtub in Hell's Kitchen. I don't want to leave anything out here. I guess I've killed maybe 20 people, maybe 40. Uh, I have uh, tapes of a lot of it. Uh, some of the girls have seen the tapes. I even, um, 
I ate some of their brains. <laughs> oh, and I tried to cook a little. <sighs> Tonight, I, uh, <laughs> I just had to kill a lot of people. And, um, I'm not sure I'm going to get away with it this time. But he looks great, doesn't he? He's like so. The, I think his his body and his face just really fit the the whole character like so well. It's you know we talked about other people being in it, and I just don't think that like other people's physicality would have would have matched enough, you know. And it's so important. He become like you know you talk about um, photography and and uh, art direction and stuff, but his his physicality just just sells that level so so it's the first thing that comes to mind with him because of the machinist and films like this and then like i think the dark knight rises when he got really really big as well he 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 tends to just fluctuate and he can he can do it the fighter where he he basically becomes a skaghead yeah so yeah you know he does commit Mm. completely and you're absolutely right joe it's important for the movie as well because not only thematically but if you you know when you approach a film like this I don't think you can help but kind of ruminate on it, reflect on it, and try and then kind of project your thinking and the world's thinking on what this film is actually trying to say. And I can imagine, and I'm I'm definitely qualifying it by saying it's not me, but I can imagine lots of people watching this and kind of loving Patrick Bateman because essentially he has got everything that uh, a man would ever want. He's uh, in incredible shape. He can have women whenever he wants. He has money. He has a, he has a job where he literally does fuck all. So like that's that's your aspiration right there. He literally doesn't quite quit. He yeah, he's quite quit for sure. <laughs> uh, from the from the outside, he is the absolute ideal. But obviously, we scratch the surface, and he is a monster. He's ugly inside. You need a, you need a, an actor who's going to be able to kind of sell both of those. And the his greatest trick in this is he skates across that reality and fantasy so beautifully did you see that one of his influences was tom cruise on letterman i think the quote was he said that he was uh enthusiastic and friendly but there was nothing behind the eyes it was completely dead and i watched it today and it's actually a little unfair but i I think letterman is is leading cruise into a story that that cruise thinks is hilarious and then and then cruise cripples himself with laughter he can't get to the end of the story because he finds his own recounting of it so amusing it's like it's very close to how mad he was when he jumped on oprah's couch you know all that stuff it's it's 1999 cruise pre-scientology but it's um uh, there's a slightly unhinged he's just trying too yeah, hard isn't and, he? and it, it doesn't feel it feels like an alien trying to relate to humans yeah but he brings these levels doesn't he yeah i think which is really important for this story because there's different levels of bateman and i just feel that um his delivery makes it very easier easiest for you to understand at what level it's coming out yeah you know so i can i can differentiate between the kind of different parts of Bateman just mm-hmm. because of Bale's performance, which really helps helps to, to get what is quite a complex story across. So yeah. I think he's really powerful for that. Normally it would be a criticism, but he is in a in a completely different film to almost everyone else. Maybe Willem Dafoe is in the same movie because he's also as heightened, but obviously he's a reflect well up to the up for 
debate, but I'm not going to debate. It's he's a, you know, he's a figment of his imagination. Yeah. But for me, it's the it's the ability to be cold and calculated, but also make fun of the character without ever undermining the threat. So when he's doing his, um, oh, we went to a, we went to show, but he's like, oh, Africa, brave <laughs> Africa. Like, that is a tricky, like, anyone can play that for laughs, but he plays it for laughs, but still manages to have that underlying threat throughout the whole mm. movie. Um, and even when he's doing his kind of Phil Collins monologue and stuff, it's just, it's a, it's a really, really hard dance to perfect. And I just, I couldn't imagine, you know, they say it sometimes, don't they? I can't imagine anyone else doing the role. I genuinely don't know. Maybe Tom Cruise, but then that would be too on the nose, I think, if it was Tom yeah. Cruise. Yeah, you need somebody who's able to, to not be Tom Cruise. I don't know. Kurt Russell, maybe? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. No, I don't know anyone else who could have done the role, mm. genuinely. I think it feels like him and Harren are, him and Harren are definitely in it together, aren't they? It feels like they are sort of attached to the hip. On, in this film, because obviously of the, the work she put in to get him, him on it, but that really, you feel that in the performance and the direction of stuff. You really feel that they are. It's coming from the same place, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you know he's a great actor because we now know lots about Christian Bale. And one thing that we can all probably say is that he doesn't seem like a dreadfully funny bloke. Um, but he is a, he's hilarious in this mm-hmm. movie. Like he's, when he's doing the Paul Allen murder <laughs> and he's dancing around, and it's a yeah. raincoat. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Paul. All, all of that. Yeah, it's over over the top. Let's talk about the director who gets that performance and how she mm. manages to, I think, hold together the, the center, the onion. Yeah. <laughs> because we talked about helming tone. Most important thing for a director is to helm the mm. tone. Other stuff, flashy stuff like wonderful camera moves and the bells and whistles on movies. There was some stuff we can talk about when we get to cinematography, where because it's it's uh, Andre Sekula who did some uh, Tarantino, uh, early Tarantino stuff, and it seemed like that that they were approaching it like a commercial. They wanted it to look beautiful, like an advert. And uh, that's interesting because some of it doesn't look that beautiful. Yeah, I guess, I guess they subvert what they've set up. But like, if you think about that opening title sequence, for example, it could be like a Marks and Spencer's. Mm. Uh, this is no ordinary raspberry Kool-Aid or whatever. Yeah. But they they um, they subvert what they what they set up ultimately. But she doesn't seem that interested in showing off uh, in in like in a, an egotism way in terms of what directors often often do she's putting on screen what needs to be there for the story i think she's focusing on on her core role Mm. i think she's she's thinking performance she's thinking about uh as well what kind of messages am i trying to send and deliver each scene um Mm. and i think the the one thing that i would say is that she she manages you know talks about bale managing to kind of flip between reality and Mm. fantasy the bit where she's having to do lots and lots of work is in those moments of, of violence. And I, I read a quote in some of the 20 year anniversaries where she was like, I wanted to make sure that I was identifying with the victims and not the killer. And we've talked about it before in slasher yeah. films. I think she manages to do that just about considering we're in his head mm-hmm. the whole time. Yeah. I, I, I think actually one of the notes I made is that I actually think that she handles the, the female characters in it very, very well and actually gives them a lot more kind of credence than is in the book so like the even like the hookers and stuff they actually they do carry themselves with quite a lot of um 
more respect than what is given them in the book. Right. Uh, um, which I think she definitely brings. That's definitely something that she's brought and it's part of the, the, the it helps the humor, I think, a bit. There's a scene that, that is, isn't in the book or the film, um, that's just suggested where he takes the coat hanger out of the drawer. And then it cuts to a little bit later with the two prostitutes leave and they have marks and sort of, it's suggested that they, she's been mutilated in some way. She says that, uh, the doctor told her that she would need surgery or something like that. So it pulls back in, in certain areas, but that, that was a scene that I was convinced was in the book, but, um, apparently it's not in the book either. They, they don't really go into detail at, at that point, but. And by all accounts, the book's more graphic. The one that I was struggling with was Reese Witherspoon. I guess I wonder if some of her scenes got cut because she's barely in the movie, which I don't remember. I remember her being in the film more. Yeah, well, I, th- I think um, I think what that does, I think her those sort of um, those other characters, what they kind of do is they kind of ground it a little bit, don't they? Because it's I think the world the, the world that they're setting up is this kind of like weird it's like uh financial elite that live above the streets mm-hmm. that live in these crazy skies which was which was what the zeitgeist at the time was and i think if you went a hundred percent at that it would be very very difficult um to ground you know to, to ground the story and to take the audience with you and i think what what these kind of uh female characters and uh, even possibly willem defoe a little bit do is they kind of bring bit of reality into it which which i think helps although willem defoe's detective is and this is why you know for those that argue that it is not a reflection of patrick bateman's version of a detective loves to just go for lunches i mean yeah. <laughs> that's what i love uh, let me just clear this information I'll, um... <laughs> he's in, he's in the club he's he's at the lunch uh there, there was a thing that um harren did when she directed defoe there's this technique that she employed where he would play it three different ways she'd say play it like you know he's guilty and then play it like you're suspicious and then play it like you're completely oblivious and then she would just play around in the edit uh to just see uh where she could take it and uh where she, if she could kind of divert the audience or make them think one thing or another so that that was an interesting little directing technique that i haven't heard done before just some preliminary questions that i need for my own files okay shoot how old are you 27 where did you go to school harvard then harvard business school your address american gardens building west 81st street Mm, nice very nice thanks what can you tell me about paul allen i'm at a loss he was part of that whole yale thing yale thing yeah yale thing what do you mean yale thing well, I think from one that he was probably a closet homosexual who did a lot of cocaine at Yale thing. What kind of man was he? Uh, besides the information you've just given. I hope I'm not being cross-examined here. You feel like that? No, not really. Where did Paul hang out? Hang out? Yeah, you know, hang out. Let me think. Uh, the Newport, Harry's, Flutie's. Indochine, Nels, the Cornell Club, the New York Yacht Club. He had a yacht? No, he just hung out there. And where did he go to school? Don't you know this? I just wanted to know if you know. Before Yale, if I remember correctly, St. Paul's. Listen, 
I just, I just want to help. <sighs> I understand. That whole thread is kind of the only thing that drives the film, isn't it? Him possibly getting caught. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that's kind of the only thing that really is the driving force for the, the narrative. Because we assume for the most yeah, part that this stuff conscious. is happening. So the, the drama comes from, yeah. is he yes. going to get caught? But later on, it's revealed that, you know, yeah. did this... Did this ever happen, you know? And it's interesting that you say that, Joe, because Danielle, this time round, she did, despite it being 90 minutes, just waver a touch. I think it's the second second interaction with Chrissy where she's like, we've seen this movie already. And this is where I think Haran's doing wonderful, wonderful work. Is, you know, you, you we talk about, like, characters growing. Like, an easy criticism for most films is, well, every character's got to have an arc. You know, these are all written in kind of, screenwriting books and you know the, the fundamentals of cinema is characters need to grow learn develop through a movie and then that's kind of our mission statement at the end it's like what have they learned what have we learned as an audience i think Harren knows listen patrick bateman not not at all a redeemable character is never going to be like a come to jesus moment for patrick bateman so she's like what i'm going to do is and this is where i think I sit with the movie is that I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm with him for the ride because I like strangely quite enjoy spending time in this horrible world until the second encounter with Chrissy. And then if you are still with Bateman at that point, cause I think that's when she's changing perspective for the audience and she does that through the way she directs that scene. Cause all the violence has been either implied or we've, you know, we see it a little glimpse of it, but we never really see it fully. But when he's chasing her with the chainsaw in the socks. Oh, he's got Jerry Seinfeld uh, sneakers on. Yeah, he does. He does. You could, you know, there's still, there's still a thread of humor there. But I think if you're still with Bateman at that point, yeah. when he's screaming down the stairs and he's dropped the chainsaw, then yeah, you're probably in the club <laughs> with, with Patrick Bateman. You should as an audience be like, right, I want to see this guy face retribution mm. but doesn't she double down at the end there when she says that there, there is no message to this this has all been for nothing the the, the the idea that there's no learning there's no arc there's no change is something that Haran probably doubles down on it i think no 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 change for the character matt but change for us as oh, how we view, we view him. him okay yes yeah and and to me like i look at like the the best movies that do it are normally your rise and fall stories you know any rise and full story any gangster movie any film where it's like you know living the life da, 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 and then they always yeah. have a pitfall normally drugs uh, and then you go yeah. oh actually it's probably it's probably best if i um you know just carry on doing my nine to five actually um she's doing that with american psycho but very specifically with him with him as a character he's not going to change he's a, he's a he was a monster at the beginning he'll be a monster at the end and actually the reveal at the end for me just shows how pathetic he is because yeah. he hasn't learned anything and he's vapid. He's got nothing to him. The only thing that he had to him was that possibly he killed people. Mm. If he hasn't got that, he's nothing, which for Patrick Bateman is like the scariest thing in the world, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Which is kind of a, I think that's a, that's the comment on the culture of the time, isn't it? In that world, you know, these massively important people who actually, you know, they don't really do anything <laughs> other, than, other than, other than keep the cogs of, capitalism kind of going yeah is it willem defoe when he's like uh, uh thanks for, for slipping me and i know how busy you are and he just pulls the war the warping and yeah. the magazine <laughs> i mean i think i wanted to one of the things i um wanted to talk about was um you know being in the head of a psychopath and mm. 
you know, whether whether we've done that before. I, I couldn't really think of many films where we're actually where the psychopath isn't isn't a secondary character or isn't um you know, normally we're in the head of somebody who's interacting with the psychopath. Yeah. Fight Club was the year before, but Fight Club would you know, it's it's funny how they were the basically in the same occupy the same cinematic space. But that's technically we're in the mind of a psychopath and the reveal at the end is Durden is yeah, the other one that flagged, uh, flagged me up, which is um, a film I love, is One Hour Photo, actually, which was just a little bit after this, I think. But yeah, I don't remember if he has... Does he have a voiceover, no. Robin Williams, in that? Or is it is it more just... I think he, he does. does, yeah. yeah he does. He does, yeah, he does yeah. when he's processing yeah. the photos. See, t- to me, it's it's Travis Bickle. It's uh, Taxi Driver. Because he, he is a psychopath, but someone that you relate to at times. And then there's a, there's a point where you don't. And it's a sim- very similar thing but but bickle has a a a moral sort of journey that he's going on and 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 bateman like you said galley is just for nothing it's just uh um you know it's a wind-up really isn't it that when it comes down to it he's in search of relevancy which in a way bickle was also which is why he kind of um he 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 hitches his wagon on the actually i'm gonna kill a politician Mm -hmm. and then the the beautiful thing about and we'll do tax jar I'm sure in the in the future because it's a great movie. The beautiful thing is that he has a kind of redemptive action at the end that is kind of almost by accident, not mm. by design, to save Jodie Foster's character. And that's the the beauty of Travis Bickle. He becomes a celebrity that everyone goes, "What a hero!" He, he was never in it for heroism, right. and but but Bateman doesn't Bateman doesn't have any of that because really. He's just kind of stuck in this vortex of irrelevancy. It, with, even when amongst his own peers, mm. you know, they keep the, one of the funniest things now. Rewatching it is everyone doesn't know anyone. They're all they're constantly going like, <laughs> and, and he, even he's doing it. He's like, "Is that Ivana Trump? No, why would Ivana Trump be a Texas Yeah, and, and there's a lot of com- but, confusion think, amid them as well. They are, they all look similar. They have he, he looks like me, but I have a slightly better haircut. You know, all that stuff. That's really important driving force for the that bit of narrative we're talking about is that is all this misidentification of each other is is that's what that really helps us to sort of question whether any of it's happened. Well, it lets her get away with that bit where there's a conversation w- with his lawyer and there's a whole mystery as to who is who. And, and you, you, yeah. Is he Davis? Yeah. Is he Bateman? That, that, that was a hard one to get my head around, but th- th- amid that confusion of them all kind of blending into one another, I think that's maybe one of the ways Harren gets away with it. It might be by design, which is that we don't get that cathartic moment of like, he's either caught or, he realizes that he's a psychopath or, you know, he literally says it's for nothing, which as an audience member watching, dedicating their time to anything mm. at the end of it, if someone says this was all for naught, um, you kind of go, Oh, now obviously that's the point of the movie. Yeah. But I think I'm, when I, when I transport myself back into my younger self, I probably was like, what's the mission statement? No, I need to be told what it is. Yeah, people don't like the, it was all just a dream. We just did Halloween 2 and there was a 20 minute dream sequence in Halloween 2 that you just couldn't deal with, Gal. You just didn't, you did not like it. I, I didn't like it, did I? And, and this is a 90 minute, well, you could argue is a 90 minute kind of fever dream. I, I think they could have probably rewritten that scene. I think they needed another draft. They needed a, so Fight Club's got this really memorable explosion. Pixies are playing. David Fincher's making a big point about like laying it on thick. Like Edward Norton is Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt is Edward Norton. And it's all collapsing in. And you remember it. 
I don't know if many people remember the ending to American Psycho, and I don't know whether that's by you know Mary Harron's point is that these people are anonymous and they just kind of like sleek through life. Maybe that is, but for for a viewer this time round, I was like, kind of wish they'd made more of a grandstanding of that um, reveal. I think that is the point of the book. Definitely, I think that Brett Easton Ellis's point was was that you know no there's no morals to it there's no kind of um grounding to it it's it's, it's like you, you mentioned about alien uh, like an alien mm. the other day they, they they are they do feel like aliens with these people mm. in new york and i think that's kind of the point well i'd, I'd listed that as been like a in terms of recommending the film and things, we do that later, but the, the caveats as far as did the film fail in that sense that, um, did it manage to be ambiguous when it needed to be? And, uh, a, a, by all accounts, the book is more ambiguous, but the, here it tends to go down the, the, the line of it being invented. And the, there's a little bit of evidence there. You know, when he, he has this altercation with the cops and the cars are exploding and it's like he's in an action movie that fits into this idea that he's inventing these little genres as well. Like Harren talked about it. He's in an action movie at that point. Cause that's what he's created. And when he chases her with a chainsaw, he's, a, he's in the horror film that he's watched on the TV. And when he's with the two prostitutes, he's in the porno that he watched as well. He, he kind of creates these little genres for himself and it's all constructed. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it really is on the nose. It, it it has to be manufactured, right? When the further it goes on, but no, that that does actually track, doesn't it? Because obviously, throughout the whole movie, um, he keeps referring to re- returning videotapes. Most of the time, we're watching him watch some porn, especially when he's just having the conversation uh, with, I think it's Courtney, mm. and the porno is just going on. He's not really listening. He's, I think he's reading the magazine <laughs> as well as having the porno in the background. Multitasking, proving that men can literally do more than one thing at once, but not very well, uh, as proven there. I think one of the things, again, that Harren does, it's his deft touch, which I imagine now would be laid on, you know, the bechamel would be really thick on the lasagna, <laughs> is the Lewis Carruthers character who is seemingly, in amongst his group of friends, is the only one who has got, like, a modicum of personality. He looks different, doesn't he? He looks different. He acts mm. different. Yeah, he's got ginger hair, which is not obviously a point of difference, but it is amongst his groups. They've all got the slicked back gel hair, and he's got, you know, curtains, little curls. Um, he's a little bit more um, flamboyant. That's probably the best way to say it. Um, and obviously then we find out that he likes men as well as women. There's two people in this movie that actually pay attention to Patrick Bateman. It's Gene, his secretary. You could argue it's uh, Willem Dafoe, but I'm going to go with Willem Dafoe as, as a facsimile and not, mm. not real. And there's Lewis Carruthers, who is constantly paying him attention. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because the, the key scene is when, um, you know, it's like, oh, Patrick, why here? Why now? And, uh, and it, obviously it's hilarious when he's washing his hands with the leather gloves that he was about to kill yeah. Lewis with. Well, he's created a fantasy in his mind as well, hasn't he? He's been waiting for Patrick to sort of... Yeah, he thinks Patrick's this wonderful yeah. bloke. But he's also been, I, I don't know if he was expecting it, but um, like why here, why now suggests that he's built up a fantasy about Patrick in his mind and and um, it's happening at an sort of inopportune moment. So maybe they're all like, whoever is real... Everyone is sort of wearing a mask. Everyone's sort of constructing their own surroundings somehow. I don't know. God, Patrick, why here? I've seen you looking at me. I've noticed your 
Aunt Mai. <laughs> Don't be shy. You can't imagine how long I've wanted this ever since that Christmas party at Arizona 206. You know, the one you were wearing that red striped paisley on Mommy Tie. I want you. I want you too. Patrick, what is it? Where are you going? I've got to return some video games. Again, it's interesting then that one of Bateman's strongest relationship is with Gene. Mm. And it's quite a controlling relationship. The same kind of controlling behavior that he demonstrates with the, with the core girls. You know, mm. you do this, you do that. Yeah. That opening interaction with Chloe Zavigny when he's like, come on, you're better than that. Like, you know, it's, it's passive aggressive. It's played for laughs. But when you dig into it, it's like, whoa. She, she's enamored with him though, right? He, she, she's, she's really interested in Patrick and Patrick's life. And- well, I was going to pull on that. You were saying about other people having fantasies about other people. I don't think she's like uh, enamored by just the power. I think she genuinely thinks he's an interesting guy. She's- don't they get married in the book? And they chose not to um, include that. But but the, the reason there I heard when when he's got the nail gun aimed at her and he's about to kill her, uh, the telephone rings and that distracts Patrick in that moment. And Harren talked about him being like a pinball machine his brain just functions in that way like he can be very easily distracted from a murder that he's about to commit just by a phone ring and and by that point the moment has passed and he lets her go and he even says to her it's a lot like the fly when he says i'll, I'll hurt you if you stay it, it turns into it, it turns into that and he, and he and he lets her go there's a slight hand there isn't there in fact because she thinks that's what he's talking about you know she thinks because she's I, I get I, i've got this thing about getting involved with you know uh attach men and stuff. he says to hurt you he mean, he doesn't mean it emotionally yeah. but she reads it yeah. that way yeah it's one of the more interesting scenes and again one of those scenes where you can read it multiple ways it's one of the strengths of the movie is there's lots and lots of scenes that are like that you know it talks about the interaction with lewis and and him in the bathroom the most famous scene is the obviously the the card mm. scene partly because it's just so funny but it's so wonderfully executed look at that picked them up from the printers yesterday Good coloring. That's bone. And the lettering is something called Cillian Braille. It's very cool, Bateman, but that's nothing. Look at this. That is really nice. Eggshell with Romalian type. What do you think? Nice. Jesus. <laughs> that is really super. How a nitwit like you get so tasteful? <laughs> I can't believe that Bryce prefers Van Patten's card to mine. But wait. You ain't seen nothing yet. Raised lettering. Pale nimbus. White. Impressive. Very nice. Mm. Let's see Paul Allen's card. Lovely coloring. The tasteful thickness of it. Oh my god. It even has a watermark. Something wrong? Patrick? You're sweating. Is it a lot about paying like paying too much attention as to what other people think about us as well? And not 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 really focusing on on how to fix our own 
on problems but we're really uh, too much attention is focused on what others think and that's kind of instagram culture i suppose and uh, and what's going on there but it, it plays into that and a, and a good film will will age well in that way and you, you can kind of put it onto a onto a contemporary thing like uh, social media and you can read a lot of things into it so I, I think it's aged well in that respect that it can still be read into in in that way and i think the the haves and the have-nots is really amplified in this movie when you think about how despicable all of them are, but none of them face any consequences whatsoever, including Bateman, which is obviously, like I say, the driving home of the point at the end of the movie is that this was all for nothing. But if you believe everything that he's done, he actually did, nothing's going to come of it because no one's there's no accountability there's no responsibility either way you read it if it's all in his head and this is just a way of occupying his mind because he's so fucking bored and so devoid of any kind of personality and original thought then you go like well there's a psycho who lives amongst us but on the outside appears to be uh the most functioning of us and has reached the the pinnacle of where most people would argue is success and then if you read it the other way he's completely able to get away with it because he's at the big, at the big pinnacle of success. Is that a comment on Wall Street then and, and the banking scenario? Then? L- literally getting away with murder. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, actually, I watched, I watched the other day, I watched The Big Short, which I'd never seen before. Um, and he's... He, uh, oh, Bale's good in that too. Bale's great in that. But I think is that maybe is part of the, the the commentary that the film's trying to make about these people who live in that bubble, that really they are completely unaccountable and they do just get away with murder. Good reading. If you're dealing with Wall Street, it's an it's an easy target, but it's how you tackle it. Because obviously yeah. we've seen that movie before too. In fact, Oliver Stone did it in Wall Street. But in that movie, there was a far more conventional story arc, which is eventually it will catch up to you. In this, it's like, no, it's far more cynical reading, which is, no, these people will will continue yeah. to live and breathe and <laughs> you won't know their names. And I guess that is the point. His lawyer doesn't know. Yeah, it, it all blends. We've talked a lot about the, you know, what does it all mean, Basil? Well, let's, uh, let's focus in on some of the technical aspects of the movie. Um, I think we can all agree that the production design is 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 wicked i really enjoy it um i love like the skewering of these modern restaurants that look all the same if you're drugged you won't know which one you're in you know joe we would be um, remiss not to talk about the cinematography when we have a um a camera and lighting guru as yourself on board what do you think about the look of the movie you know is it a bit 2000 well so i'm yeah i mean i I remember when i watched it back earlier this week i was kind of aghast really because i didn't (laughs) <laughs> There's lots, lots of things I didn't like about it. Like I, the hard lighting on it is is pretty, it's pretty gruesome. Um, but then it kind of fits. It fits uh, Bill's sort of persona. Actually, I think it does feel quite like a fashion shoot. Mm. Um, I think, and it it does kind of reference back those kind of those eighties fashion shoots where they did use like quite a lot of hard lighting. Um, uh, there's like lots of multiple shadows and stuff, but I, I don't really mind it. It's the, there's quite a few horror traits in it as well. Um, like the bit with the, um, the, the beginning with the, um, the waiter, he looked, you know, it's really quite horrific. Um, 
the, the style of lighting and the camera angles. Um, but I think, like, a lot of it plays... A lot of it's quite basic coverage, um, and I feel that they didn't really want to go too, too off the wall with stuff because the script and the content is quite off the wall. The performance is big, so don't amplify it. Quite enough, really. Uh, so in that respect, I think it's handled very well. It's not the prettiest, I don't think. It's not the prettiest, but then it's not the prettiest subject matter. So, you know. That's, that's what I think that she doesn't bring her ego into it. She doesn't care that the, the movie doesn't look beautiful because she feels like the photography reflects the, the material and she doesn't bring her own. Cause as a director, you, you want to sort of impart your own vision onto it. And, and I feel like she's, kind of that's kind of absent in her filmmaking style and that's kind of interesting and an egoless kind of take on it but it doesn't result in a film that looks like taxi driver but it maybe it shouldn't yeah and i wondered um and i guess this is a question for you joe i wonder budget come into on this one what did you say seven million did you say i think it was seven million dollars um, it might be adjusted mm. for inflation um especially fucking now god adjusted for inflation now <laughs> oh, no. um yeah is would budget come into it uh, i think it was shot in toronto though wasn't it it's a mixture isn't it they did some like street scenes in in new york but i think the majority of it was shot in toronto um it was seven weeks it was a seven week shoot which is quite tight it's, that's you know, that's a tight fairly tight schedule um and yeah i think budget probably does have quite a bit to do with it i would imagine they are shooting locations they're not you know they're not all builds so in terms of influences they did mention kubrick and they said they wanted a clean image and almost like an advertising almost like an advert or a commercial very crystalline and glossy and then this idea of juxtaposing horrific things with something that was quite beautifully shot that was what they were trying to do and uh yeah that they they, re- they referenced kubrick and they said kubrick was the master of this idea of black comedy in terms of like the social stuff so they, they looked at the probably like the cleanliness of something like um clockwork orange that the horrific things that are happening but the the very the precision of, of how it's been shot you can feel some of that i think uh, absolutely as, as you mentioned that now i'm thinking about the home invasion scene in a clockwork orange and the whites the white walls with the little floor and killing the, the tramp obviously yeah. that would be another big yeah and killing ideas. a tramp of course yeah. uh you know and a bit and a bit of the old in and out um anyway mm. uh so yeah no i i think I, I had the same feeling as well joe but i did wonder i had to qualify my thinking as well it's actually a really low budget movie. I don't know how mm. much Christian Bale got, but I'd imagine it wasn't a great mm. deal. Um, I know that Mary Harron didn't get a great, uh, great deal either, and she um, co-wrote and directed the thing too. Um, it just kind of speaks to how little Lionsgate had any faith in the project. But isn't it strange how that then means that you can go and make the film that you want to make? I think. I think um, getting back to the um, cinematography as well. I think, and it's kind of what we've talked about before but like i think the lack of narrative in it is quite difficult you know for a cinematographer to because you really want you want to be able to use the camera and the lighting to be able to drive the narrative um and i think because they're all it's just a it's just a series of sort of separate scenes that don't really play into each other very much 
So I think it was. There's not really a through line. There's like there's like a, there's separate no. things. Uh, did did you have a favourite shot? I, there's a bit where he's in the back of the taxi with Samantha Mathis, and she you can see her very clearly, and he's completely warped on the other side, on the right side of the frame, and she's very clear on on the left. And it reminded me of all that American beauty stuff that Sam Mendes was doing at the time, like using like fr- framing Kevin Spacey in a computer reflection. So it looks like he's in a prison and I'd, I'd never, I'd never seen anything like that before. So I think there, there, there is some qualities to the framing at times that I feel like. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, I think there's a, there's a shot in his office where, where Gene comes in through the door and the, the, the shot is the back of mm-hmm. his head and he's sharp focus and he's very close to the camera. Um, and she walks in and she's sharp focus. And I was like, is that a skip that up? Does, does that mm. mean? But it isn't. It's just, it's just a really wide lens. Right. Yeah, really stopped down. So. I suppose the framing's more interesting than the lighting in many ways for, for me in this one, but. I think she manages with that framing to keep it visually interesting mm. because a lot of it is just interior talking murder scenes and obviously it's testament to Bale that we're pretty much just more than happy to kind of follow his stream of madness like when I'm thinking about when he's um when in his first the threesome scene when he's just talking about <laughs> Phil Collins moving from back and forth and even the that sex scene, the way it's blocked, mm. there's a coldness to it. It's like the the least sexy, you know, anyone who's going on Mr. Skin and going, oh, yeah, let's get on that uh, American Psycho scene. Oh, we'll get some screen caps of that. Mm. No, no. The way Mary Harron shot it is like, you're not going to get anything out of this, kids. You know, don't worry. Yeah, she talks about that a bit, the, the detachment of the sadness, I think she said, of the sex scene and how just... Uh, detached it is from what it what it should be and his direction there is just hilarious because he's sort of, he's on he's on his phil collins rant and then he suddenly breaks into how he wants them to kind of behave okay matt i've just got on my limo i have just got myself uh, a new overnight bag it's lovely by the way um is that ivana trump no i'm stopping off at critics corner which is just next to the four seasons what are they saying in the latest puff piece in Critics Corner about American Psycho? Sadly, there's a video somewhere of Ebert defending the film against uh, a reviewer who dismissed it as purely being a slasher. And I remember watching it a few years ago, but it looks like it's been removed. There is a Reddit thread about it. Um, but there's a there's a written piece on uh, on Roger Ebert. Um, where uh, he he dropped one of my favorite bits of analysis I've heard him do. He says, when Bateman kills, it's not with the zeal of a villain from a slasher movie. It is with the thoroughness of a hobbyist. Lives could have been saved if instead of living in a high rise, Bateman had been supplied with a basement, a workbench, and a lot of nails to pound. I felt like that, that fits into some of the stuff we were talking about you know, the pointlessness of his his career, how little he seems to do. And if he just had a menial job, like some kind of uh, meaningful task to do, maybe his brain wouldn't have kind of taken over at this point. And, uh, there was another one. Uh, I've overheard debates about whether some of the murders are fantasies. Um, he said, uh, the function of the murders is to make visible the frenzy of the territorial male when his will is frustrated. Uh, and this movie gives shape and form to this idea of road rage, golf course rage, family abuse, uh, and the scarier behavioral patterns of sports fans. 
So that's that's where that's where Ebert leaned in. He's projected a bit there. <laughs> <laughs> he's not had fun on the golf course. He's he's yeah he's he's leaning into something there. But I I kind of know what he's on about. I think I was kind of with with Roger. Cool. Well, um, we will uh, we will wrap up and I'll do our final thoughts. I'll start with you, Joe, as our special guest. Um, final thoughts on American Psycho, and would you recommend it to our listeners? So yeah, I would. It would be a, a recommend. I wouldn't say it's a hard recommend, to be honest. I wouldn't. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a hard recommend. It's a it's kind of soft recommend. Um, I think it was a difficult, very difficult novel to transfer to a film, but I think it's done very well. I think it's handled as well as it could be. I think you know, um, which and, and and it certainly adds to it. I think there's it's a, it's it's different. You know, it's a different different to the book, but I think it's it, it is it is well done. Um, I think not only because of the violence, it's difficult, but because of the the sort of lack of narrative and the sleight of hand that is the kind of uh, misidentification of all these different people and how you kind of, how that feeds into what, what it's really talking about, um, which I think is done very well. And Bale is just amazing. I mean, I think the, the hard recommend would come because of Bale's performance is fabulous, you know, absolutely excellent. Um, but yeah, very, com- very good, very competent, very, um, very well handled. Cool. Gals, do you want to go? It's strange, isn't it? How in periods of cinema, certain topics are, are broached, more and then they they fall out of favor etc but the whole kind of toxic masculinity lens um you know i think we talked about it with joel schumacher's falling down which will definitely be a future episode um because it's a great it's a great movie and it's a great character study um and i'm going to put american psycho in that category as a really really important and noteworthy exploration of toxic masculinity it's a different type um but the whole kind of violence against women the attitudes um and the kind of glimpse into a psychopath and one of the things that i really appreciate that i'm really mentioned in the main body of the text for this episode is i just appreciate that there is no rationale whatsoever so there's mention i think Evelyn mentions you know your dad practically owns the company um but we don't get the cheap Oh, that's the reason why he's a psychopath and he wants to kill people because he's trying to exercise daddy issues from the past. Nope. He's just a monster. I appreciate the fact that the, the film skirts that when this movie is not about exploring what makes a psychopath. This movie is really exploring about the vapid nature of this particular type of psychopath. You know, somebody who's got no personality, no relevance is desperate for status and is desperate to be known and appreciated and seen and and we're all like that you know i think everyone's got a part of us that would like love to be recognized and seen for you know lots of people do lots of really good work but not everyone goes out and tries to substitute that um search for status by uh by going out and doing some killing and 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 actually the way that bateman approaches it is they're almost like uh, sugar rushes every time he does he kills somebody it obviously appeases him for a little bit, but he can't help himself because he's still he's, he's chasing the dragon. I think um, is the is this is the phrase. So yeah, I think Joe, you're absolutely right. Bale's performance would be a recommend 
in and of, in of itself. Um, but I really enjoy this movie. I'm going to go a bit further than you. I'm going to say it's a strong recommendation for me just because I think the satirical element is, is what I gravitate towards now and also the insight and the way that Mary Harron's kind of, there's a golden thread that she's, she's managed to pull through the whole movie. Um, and it, and I just modern, a lot of modern films that would tackle similar subject matter tends to be a bit clunkier, a little bit preachy and a tad overbearing. And she manages to find the balance in this movie. Um, so it's a strong recommendation for me. And I think the humor is very much my sensibilities. Um, it feels European. It doesn't feel American. Um, and I don't know, uh, I don't know why that is. I think she's just got a great grasp of, of the tone. Um, but in, lesser hands i think this would have been yeah this could have been like an insufferable movie that would have been a cult classic because like five percent of people really love it and everyone else is kind of like meh but i think it's like 60 odd percent on rotten tomatoes which i know is not a great barometer for for what most people think but it's a good barometer and i think that's where it sits it's like some people will fucking hate this movie but i think if you approach it as a black comedy then you will enjoy it. If you're approaching it as a serious investigation into what makes a psychopath, then you're going to absolutely loathe this. Um, because it's, it's not an easy watch. That's for sure. It's not a Friday, uh, with a couple of beers and a pizza. Um, it's not that movie. Um, I think you have to be in the headspace for it. Um, luckily for me, I was twice this week. Um, and the running time is excellent because it meant that I could watch it twice and not feel like I'd lost a day of my life. Anyway, that's me. Strong recommendation. What about you, Matt? Um, we, we talked a lot about Mary Harron, but Guinevere Turner was the screenwriter as well. And she, mm. she had a little quote that it was, uh, it's a feminist film satire about competitive men, she said. And the mm. women are less important than your tan or your suit. And uh, it's about, it's a film about how men perceive and treat women, which is another, if you view it through that prism, it changes it all again. And Haran, I think, summed it up by saying it's a parody of masculinity, a send up. It was accused of being sexist, but it was always an attack on and a satire of sexism and the male ego. So I feel, I feel like I understand it more after, you know, reading, reading about what some of the filmmakers said about it. Um, as a 17 year old, I was not sophisticated enough to detect any of that. So I'm to, to see it with another level to it was, uh, other than it just being this nasty piece of work, um, a piece directed by a woman with the intent to skewer this thing from the inside. Uh, we sometimes say Trojan horse it, but it, it's definitely an under the radar. She, she's slipping certain things under the radar and it has to be seen at least twice. So, um, that, yeah, that, that's yeah. a recommendation in itself. Any film that you need to see twice to sort of get to grips with it. I suppose it could be a, a, a not recommend on that basis, but I, I would maybe lean the other way and say, you know, um, one watch will just scratch the surface. You really need to see it again. Yeah, it's not a Shyamalan, is it? It's not watch it no. twice to make sure that everything actually makes sense. It's very much a, not to say that all of movies are like that, but um, old is like that and it doesn't make sense, but it's still fun. <laughs> <laughs> The most interesting thing about the film is that it kind of fails because, you know, I wasn't a particularly smart 17 year old, but I wasn't stupid either, but I, I it did pass me by at that, at that point. Um, 
I think it's scary when you try to satirize something, but the end result becomes like this GQ magazine thing where they talk about what Bateman wears and they talk about like articles about if American Psycho happened today, where would he eat in New York and stuff like that. So, it, you know, um, and which restaurants would he struggle to get into and, and things like that. So I was trying to get it, get it across like this idea of have I got news for you and the way they skewer the, the news, but they're actually skewering really important things. And when you, you talk about things like life and death, things with a, with a humorous nature, you know, it can go, it can go the wrong way if you're not careful. So this film does kind of glamorize it further, I think, but so I'm not sure if she achieved her goal, but these two things bumping up against each other, uh, this idea that it glamorizes consumerism and all that. And, and it's also a skewering parody of those things that could be what gives it the edge in terms of rewatching it uh that kind of blurred line um there is no answer at the end it's a, it, illusory as he says it's an abstraction and it's been designed that way um so you know i i don't think she made it as ambiguous as she should have i i think that that final third there when it all goes haywire for bateman i think it um Tips the tips the hat too much, you think? It, it does. I mean, it, it's there's no question to me that that's fantasy at the end there, and I think maybe it's a more interesting film if it is more ambiguous at, at the end as as to whether he committed the crimes or not. Um, but I, I did find it to be very layered and detailed, and it'll stand up to multiple viewings. And I laughed a lot when I watched it. There's this idea that we're we're trapped, unable to distinguish fantasy from reality, and we crave the approval of others. And we deny our own beliefs and all these things. We wear a mask and all that. Um, these are terrific themes that are still relevant. I think it's smarter than I ever gave it credit for. And, um, you know, I, it's, it's a recommend. I'm not going to say soft or hard. I'll go right in the middle. I'll just, I'll just say recommend. And, um, I, I think it's a worthy revisit. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it was a fun, fun one to rewatch. Yeah, no, well, well surmised, Matt. I mean, I think, I think that was the only thing I'll qualify is that for, for, for general audiences that like a movie with a conclusive ending, this one could leave you frustrated. There is no finality. There is no retribution. There is no redemption. There is just, uh, just Bateman. Oh, I'm a poet laureate myself. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Matt, where can our listeners, those that dare to dream, where can they find American Psycho? Uh, if you're in the UK, it's currently streaming on uh, all four. Or is, is it called 4OD or all four now? What is it called? You can get it for niche on there. And uh, if you're in America, you can get it on DirecTV and HBO Max. And uh, Korea is the same. Excellent. It's also heavily in rotation. I mean, you can buy it. Is it Blu-ray and comedy? I don't have the Blu-ray. I, I don't think I even owned the DVD back in the day, but there is, uh, if you look in the show notes this week, there's a Mary Harron commentary that I would recommend. That's for free on YouTube. You can, you can listen to that. She's terrific. Mm, I think I am going to because yeah. that's the one thing I will take away from this um, this viewing was that I'm now like a big Mary Harron fan. I was yeah. always a fan because I enjoyed this movie, but I've, I will admit I've never seen any of her other works and I'm now going to seek them out because uh, really impressive and really candid director, especially in interviews, like does not sugarcoat anything. But there's no pretension either. She, she gets through like 90 minutes without ever sounding pretentious, but she discusses everything that she needs to. And that was kind of amazing. Really. 
listeners, if you would like some of our merchandise, then please head over to devlindoesdrawing.com. Yep, go over there. We sell shower caps. We sell t-shirts of Jet from Gladiator, which are flying off the shelves, flying stronger and harder than here on the rings. So, yeah, you need to get in there quick. I believe there will be some Christmas deals. I haven't discussed this with Devlin. He's not aware of it, but we're going to do it anyway because uh, times are tough, and why should we be taking our 25p when we could make it less? So that's what we're going to do. Um, so, yeah, please do check out lots of drawings and sketches and all that kind of good stuff. Matt, you've also got your blogs, and also check out the rewindmoviecast.com website, full of good uh, articles to read, our episodes as well to listen back to endlessly on loop when you're quite quitting at work. So, yes, all those good stuff. And if you like what we do... Please like, share, subscribe, spread the gospel team. Okay. A wee review on Spotify. Actually, I don't think you can do a review on Spotify. I don't know what I'm talking about. Stars, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Stars. Yeah. Which is a, yeah, it's a dangerous one because people could just, you know, give us one if they wanted to, which is your prerogative. I would ask you to engage regardless. <laughs> and also a big thank you to, um, our listener request this week, which was James Monroe from uh, Finger and Ho. Um, lovely village, by the way, in, uh, in Sussex, <laughs> in East Colchester. So do, um, if you are passing through, um, go there. Lovely. Um, Joe, I would also like to thank you as our guest. Uh, yeah, thanks for coming in. It's been a pleasure, guys. Great, great to revisit it and have a, good, have a good look at it. Yeah, it was great. Okay, well, we will say our goodbyes then, team. Duct tape. I need it for taping something. It's Gally in Glasgow. Signing out. Stay safe, everyone. I see they've omitted the pork loin with a lime jello. It's Matt in South Korea. I have to return some videotapes. It's Joe in Yorkshire. Thanks very much for listening, everyone, and we will catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. I'm not afraid to